0: Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the IFS, and joining me today are Ben Nabarro of City and Carl Emerson, uh, Deputy Director at the IFS. And today we're going to be talking about the small subject of the state of the UK economy and where it might go and what that might mean for the public finances and then how government might have to respond. Because today is the day that we've launched our annual green budget, which looks at the Chancellor's options as he moves towards a real budget, though this year, as last, uh, the budget has been uh, delayed right through to the spring. But the big issues that he's going to face uh, will not be very different to what they are now. But before we start speculating about the future, Ben, perhaps you could just briefly take us through Where the economy is at now? How much has it shrunk since uh, before the pandemic? What do we know about the impact so far uh, on particularly jobs, but also other aspects of living standards?
1: Uh, Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Paul. Um, So clearly the UK has had an unprecedented uh, GDP contraction in the second quarter. through the sort of two months to April, so February to April cumulatively, uh, GDP fell by around 25% uh, as a result of the lockdown measures.
0: Worth just pausing on that, Ben, 25% fall in a couple of months. I mean, we've literally have never seen that in the entirety of history, have we?
1: No, no, absolutely not. Um, and we that broadly took us on a GDP per capita basis back to where the economy was in the late 1990s, so two decades and two months which is very, very remarkable. Um, Since then, um, the economy has recovered pretty strongly, um, broadly as many expected, um, as capacity has come back online, uh, spending has um, come back online as well, as kind of previously deferred expenditures have been realised. And also people have sometimes brought forward consumption in an attempt to manage their adjustments, spending more time at home and so on. But absolutely instrumental in all of this has been the scale of income support uh, that has been heavily front-loaded by the government um, in order to protect incomes and jobs from the huge reduction, reduction in GDP. So even as sort of GDP fell by this unprecedented 20% in the second quarter, unemployment actually fell marginally compared to the first. And that's very much a reflection of the scale and generosity of the initial job protection scheme. And the implication of that has been that households have been able to accumulate very significant and, again, unprecedented savings through the second quarter that they've then been able to put to use in driving this recovery over the summer as capacity has come back online. So taking all that together, we've had a very sharp rebound from an equally remarkable contraction, but we haven't really seen any meaningful impact yet um, for jobs and incomes in aggregate. Now, it's important to recognise here that incomes have fallen for some people, clearly. The furlough scheme wasn't 100% replacement, it was 80%. We also know that some poorer households in particular have been forced into this savings. So it, it wouldn't be right to say there hasn't been hardship. But in aggregate, it is true to say that despite this huge reduction, many people have not felt the true scale of that. by any means, by virtue of the support to date. And that's kind of driven this very sharp rebound already. Now, what's concerning now is despite sort of 9.1% growth month on month in June, 6.4% in July, growth slowed very sharply in in August. Now, usually 2.1% month on month growth would be very, very high indeed. But actually, in the current circumstances, it's extremely disappointing. Without with kind of the economy having largely fully reopened and households, you know, sentiment improving and with all of this support, we still saw output 9.2% below where it was in February. Now, to give you a sense of scale, during the peak to trough during the financial crisis, uh, the largest sort of fall compared to the pre-crisis level was around 5.96% or so. So this is a much bigger gap that we're not seeing now as a result of the lingering effects of the virus. You you know, this is aside from the restrictions, the things that are persisting um, despite the support to date. And that for us is is deeply concerning because in essence, you know, the lockdown and the restrictions in capacity and the other things drove such a sharp reduction in the first half of this year. But we do think that virus fear among households does have a lingering and persistent impact on demand. Specifically, it drives up drives precautionary behavior, so it drives up saving and reduces consumption. But we also think it drives a a, a reconfiguration, if you like, of household demand. So people want to spend less on restaurants because they're concerned for their safety, and to a degree, they spend more on other things like household goods. And we've seen that already. And um, you know, lamps and so on have been very difficult to buy in recent months, just by virtue of the scale of demand. Um, But sadly, it seems that for every pound that people choose not to spend in restaurants, they don't fully reallocate it elsewhere. They sort of save a bit more. And that reflects the fact that households think, you know, this environment is temporary uh, to start with. And also the things that remain available are pretty poor substitutes for the things that they feel they don't really want to spend on right now. So buying more T-shirts is not really a good good substitute for going on holiday. They tend to be complements. So, in answer to your question about where the economy is right now, we've enjoyed this rebound. We think that's now starting to come to an end. We think we're moving into this more kind of protracted, more difficult recovery phase, where um, you know demand will be continue will continue to be held back by some of these persistent effects. And our concern is, with particularly support now being wound down. In many, for most people, the economic challenges of this will really just be beginning to materialise in the sense that we think unemployment will now increase quite markedly to reflect that gap from the pre-coronavirus level.
0: So too, there's a, a lot in that answer, Ben. I think two, two things that really jump out for me is first that there's, despite this what you describe as the big rebound in the economy since the end of lockdown. We're still a lot smaller as an economy than we were a year ago, much bigger fall in output than we had in the the height of the financial crisis, which was itself the deepest recession in a very, very long time. And indeed, that rebound appears to be coming, if not to a complete end, certainly slowing down very dramatically. But secondly, I think there's this key point that actually we're not as a society, as it were, as a group of individuals. Um, While some people are feeling this at the moment, the majority of people are not yet feeling the consequences in terms of their jobs and their incomes and their earnings because of the scale of government support. But that government support is now being withdrawn pretty sharply. So in some senses, it doesn't feel that much like a recession. It feels quite difficult for all sorts of reasons, but we don't have the reports of high levels of unemployment that we're used to in recessions. Uh, but I think the the, the the key point you're making, in a way, is that that you know, the, 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 the the dam is, is potentially about to burst when it comes to unemployment, and therefore, you know, the real feeling that we'll all have of being in, not just in a pandemic, but also in a deep recession as well.
1: Absolutely, absolutely right. Um, I think an important point to emphasise with respect to the recovery from here as well, is we really are depending on households to drive this. Um, you know, consumption has has dropped by more in the second quarter than in a usual recession. So almost inherently as, you know, day follows night, that's more important. But also a lot of the income um, support and the fiscal support the government has provided has tended to go to households and has supported this glut of household savings, if you like. So one of the key questions for the recovery is the degree to which sort of household spending can in and of itself prevent the adverse labor market kind of conditions and damage to incomes that you describe. And there, I think there are really good reasons to be somewhat skeptical that actually these adverse dynamics, that dam bursting, if you like, can be prevented. You know, we know that these demand effects are seemingly likely to linger, and I think that's well evidenced in the August GDP print. Um, I think we know that those lingering demand effects fall disproportionately in uh, labour-intensive sectors, and therefore that's likely to have a larger impact on unemployment and likely with it household sentiment as well. So in many ways, one of the key challenges of this crisis is, by virtue of its character and the support the government has provided so far, we really depend on households to go back out and spend in every possible way. But we also know that you know, households are very reluctant to do that. And actually, if you start doing it, the government has to step in and stop you because the public health risks as well. So if the government is now, and it seems to have moved quite sharply from talking about tens of billions to now talking about hundreds of millions with respect to support for the labour market and so on, I just don't think it's enough to prevent these more vicious, you know, household spending to labour market dynamics now coming into play. And as you described, Paul, that 's something that 's going to make this feel very very different it 's going to compound everyone 's existing anxiety about um, the virus with very very substantial economic anxiety as well sadly
0: well um, that 's not very cheerful but uh, let me let me move on to Carl just uh, before we go to the future let's let's let 's continue to reflect on the present and the recent past um, Ben has referred a number of times there, Carl, to the scale of government support over the last um, six months or so. you just give us a sense of a sense of that scale? I mean, how much has government actually spent? Uh, and what's been the impact on government borrowing?
2: Yes, and the, the flip side of having an incredibly deep recession, but government support stepping in, to ensure that public services are protected, to give support for many households, for many businesses, is of course that while those households and those businesses won't be feeling the pain, anything like what they would have done had government not stepped in, what you do see is a huge increase um, in government spending over and above Um, where it would have been. And and if you look over the year to date, starting in April, you can see that we've continued to break records in terms of the amount of money that the government's been borrowing in those months compared to the same months um, in earlier years, even comparing to the financial crisis where um, there there were substantial government interventions and government deficits rose pretty quickly. Across the whole of this financial year, it seems pretty clear um, that we're going to see a deficit that breaks records in the sense that as a share of our economy, the government's going to borrow more money in a single financial year than it has done at any point since at least 1700 outside of the two world wars of the 20th century. Um, So remarkable level of government borrowing for very good reasons. When you have a very big negative shock that you think is going to be temporary, it's right that government steps in and plays a big role in supporting people. And it's also very noticeable when you look at the increase in the, the deficit this year, Before COVID came along, the government was talking about borrowing perhaps around £55 billion this year. Um, It's probably going to be something like £300 billion more than they thought, so somewhere of the magnitude of £350 billion. And of that increase in the deficit, some two-thirds is a direct result of measures the government has announced, the cost of things like the furlough scheme, the support for self-employed people, the extra money for track and trace, PPE the extra grants, to businesses. So two-thirds of that increase in the deficit we're seeing this year is a direct result of decisions. That's very different to previous recessions. It's even very different to the last financial crisis, where there was quite a big package of support, but nowhere near
0: as big as what we're seeing at the moment. It's quite hard to get one's head round these numbers, isn't it? £350 of borrowing. I mean, it's just worth repeating again what you said. We've never seen anything like that outside of the First and Second World Wars in the whole of history it's um it's very very much higher than the borrowing we had in the financial crisis which was at the time a uh, post-war record um and we've seen these huge amounts of money spent on furlough schemes on support for business on support for public services i mean can you is, is there any other way of just giving a sense of the sheer scale of all of this um, well it's certainly absolutely phenomenal i think it also means that
2: there's very difficult decisions about um how quickly and which parts of the packages get turned off Um, clearly if you leave them in for too long you'll have lots of effects you don't want to have on the economy you'll end up spending money on schemes you don't want to do withdraw them too quickly and you'll be causing um, more hardship than you need to
0: i mean ben's certainly suggesting in what he was saying that some of these schemes are being turned off pretty hard i mean the spending on the furlough schemes coming to an end this month in in, in October. And most of that spending, uh, of that extra 200 billion of spending, is done.
2: Yes, a very, very large proportion of it looks like it's behind us. Of course, we don't know. One feature of what the government's done through the crisis is that um, it's had to repeatedly announce new packages of support and come back with more. That's not not necessarily a bad thing. It's important to be nimble when um, you're getting new information on how things are evolving. Clearly, back in March, the, the hopes at least of many of us is that um, we wouldn't all be um, in quite the situation um, we are now. I mean, another sense of the scale of this is that um, it's roughly 10% of GDP in terms of the direct interventions, the 200 billion pounds um, of interventions that we're seeing. If you compare that to the last financial crisis when we did a the, the, the big headline measure was a cut to the main rate of VAT, that was probably costing around 1% of national income. Um, so you know there were other things alongside that at the time but it it, it just dwarfs what we've seen before.
0: So um, coming back to you Ben uh, you've given us some sense of where we are at the moment uh, which is an economy you know certainly at the end of August 9% smaller than it was a year ago. Um, Unemployment in danger of rising quite rapidly. Uh, What about the next well let's start with the relatively short term Where, where might we go in the next six months or so?
1: We think that um, what we've seen in the last few weeks is actually somewhat apocryphal in the sense that as long as you're continuing to see virus risks persist, you will get recurrences of the virus, we think. I think that's very hard to fully prevent, um, clearly outside of our expertise, but something that um, those with tend to point to as well. And that we think will continue to result in local outbreaks, local restrictions and weighing on sentiment nationally so that's why we think this sort of plateau effect if you like with respect to the recovery is really like is likely to start to come into play over the um, immediate um, next few months beyond that we clearly have another major shock in the form of brexit which at least um you know as far as we can tell from where we're speaking today um, even in the best case is of a deal being reached is likely to result in very substantial economic disruption as well it's worth noting that covid and brexit are somewhat complementary shocks they don't necessarily operate through the same channels in fact they don't generally um, and as such, you know they don't necessarily compound each other hugely in a direct sense. But they also don't it, just because we have COVID and output so much lower. It doesn't negate the impact of Brexit either.
0: Just, just take us um, just yeah. just to slow down on that. I mean, the, just to get a handle on what what, what you mean there. You know, there. There's two shocks to the economy. One is COVID, and I think you're saying that's that's going to hit one part of the economy, particularly perhaps the service. Um, sector hospitality and that sort of thing, and then you've got Brexit, which is going to potentially hit another part of the economy, particularly uh, issues in uh, particularly in manufacturing and those areas of the country which are heavily dependent on manufacturing. So I think you're saying that these things aren't going to, you know, make each other worse for individual areas or industries, but it's just going to make sure one of them is going to hit one bit of the country, one's going to hit the other, and altogether uh, that means more is going to be affected in in total. Is that is that is that the point you're making there?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and much. Um, more succinctly put than I was. Um, So absolutely. And as a result, we think that's going to also weigh on growth at the start of 2021 and, again, sort of preclude um, a further stronger recovery and push it back into the latter part of 2021 and early 2022 as well. Um, Just on those Brexit effects, um, because it's easy, given the scale of the COVID impact, to sort of push it to the back pages and pretend it isn't important, Um, We think that's likely to weigh on uh, output in 2021 to the tune of around 2.1%. Now, in normal times, that would be well sufficient uh, to push the UK economy into a recession. Um, The large impact there reflects, firstly, the sense in which even if we get a deal, most of the external costs associated with Brexit are still likely to materialise. These are the result of things that don't really... Are not generally covered by conventional trade agreements. It also reflects um, the fact that firms and the government has had less time to prepare as a result of COVID as they've rightly focused on the immediate challenge of the pandemic. And that likely means there's more front-loaded adjustment to come, more disruption, greater cost and so on, compared to time where business had had a long run up to this and better opportunities to administratively prepare themselves
0: so that so so thinking about about brexit there i mean we we've focused over the last few years on the fact that um, it's already had some negative effect on the british economy but you're saying there's a bigger effect still to come potentially quite quickly next year had we had a normal this year this year that might have pushed us into recession but i guess that um, because you know this year is so low um, what it will mean is that our our recovery from the coronavirus crisis will be slower than it otherwise would would have been. I, I assume you still think that uh, the economy will be bigger in a year's time than it is today?
1: Yes, absolutely. But that, uh, uh, that 2.1% deduction means it's just a less strong rebound compared to other economies and what the UK would have been otherwise. I think the point you make about the level of adjustment so far is very important. Um, we think that while there has been some adjustment to longer-term capacity, and that's been the implication of lower levels of investment, uh, weak sterling has also created a strong incentive to keep activity in the UK as long as possible for the purposes of exporting into the EU, even if inviable in the long term. So we still think there's lots still to move.
0: Yeah, and that's, uh, and that's really quite um, concerning, as you say, uh, we're, um, we, we've got the double effect of the coronavirus and Brexit. I mean, I think one of the charts that you've uh, shown me suggests that if you certainly look at the first half of this year, the UK has done worse economically than almost any other country other than Spain. Uh, and then if we go forward, we've got the additional um, impact of Brexit on our growth. I mean, if we look a little bit further, I mean, wh- wh- roughly when do you think the economy might even be just as it, as big as it was a year ago? Are we going to get back to... 2019 levels of output next year or are we going to have to wait longer than that
1: i think we should expect to wait longer than that um given both effects and given particularly the august gdp print we think that's a 2023 event and probably something that's going to come in the latter part of 2023 as well wow
0: so 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 four years from 2019 to 2023 before we even get back to where we were in 2019 yeah And that's pretty shocking, isn't it? How long did it take? Do do, do you know? Remember how long it took uh, uh, in the financial crisis to get back to the previous peak?
1: I think it was 2013.
0: Okay, so another long period again.
1: And similar to the financial crisis, it's um, one of the features of this one. We think is you know we have the dual short term impacts of COVID clearly and Brexit as well. Relatively short term, these things last multiple months clearly, but. Looking further out, we also think the UK economy is going to have to structurally adjust a lot. And that's one of the reasons for that really slow recovery. We know usually that financial crises are a special beast in the sense they take, the economy takes longer to recover. So you would have thought this recovery would be quicker. But it's that restructuring that explains the really slow path that we've got in our forecasts.
0: So, yeah, so not only have we had this big hit two big hits to the economy, but each one of those is going to require the economy to recover in a different shape to the shape that we're used to. I mean, the the, the COVID uh, recovery will presumably result in less in the way of city centre retail and hospitality and something else in its place, and the Brexit recovery will uh, presumably result in less uh, tradable manufacturing, for example, and something else in its place. And that's going to take uh, quite a long time for any economy to adjust to that and um, not to get back to 2019 levels until 2023 is some, you know, and and that's not a central scenario. I mean, things, of course, could be even worse than that if one wants to be really um, miserable about this. Carl, this, of course, has um, consequences for the public finances. You've talked about the scale of um, spending and borrowing this year, which has, of course, been entirely Necessary, And um, if we were sort of just looking at a one-off event, a big increase in borrowing, debt goes up, and then we went back to where we otherwise would have been, we perhaps wouldn't be desperately worried about the increase in debt. But because of what Ben's just said about the slowness of the recovery, that's presumably not what's going to happen to the public finances. We're not just going to bounce back to where we otherwise would have been.
2: No, that's entirely right. And in fact, if you get to 2023 and your economy's still struggling to get back to the level it was at last year... Um, That's still not um, where we would have anticipated the economy being had we been sat here discussing this um, a year ago. So even once we get back to those 2019 levels, the economy will still be quite a bit smaller. Possibly, you know, in four or five years time, the economy could still be around 5% smaller on a central scenario than where it would have been had this virus um, never struck. If you've got an economy that's 5% smaller, Roughly speaking, you're going to end up with tax revenue. You're going to tax revenues down by a similar magnitude, possibly a bit more, given the deflationary nature of this shock. Um, That means your deficit is going to be running at a higher level, and therefore you will need to think about some adjustments to policy. Some where to squeeze spending, where to put up taxes, Um, not because of the amount of borrowing we're doing this year, but because on an enduring basis the deficit's running at a very high level. And if you don't take action to get that deficit back to something a bit more manageable, you won't be running down the debt that you've built up. You've built up all this debt this year. That's not necessarily a problem. But over the longer term, you want your debt to GDP ratio to fall back again. Firstly, because we don't want to end up spending too much money on servicing our debts. And secondly, very importantly, one of the lessons from all of this is that at some point in the future, hopefully a little distant future, but at some point an adverse shock will come along. And we want government to be able to step in and borrow lots of money and push up debt again. So you want to create that space in the good times. So not now, but in three or four years time, the Chancellor is going to be needing to implement measures in order to deal with that enduring impact on the deficit, to get it back to uh, more appropriate levels, to help manage down the debt that we've accumulated um, at the moment and to stop debts building up going forwards.
0: Carl, what do you say to those who who would say that, you know, what this year has demonstrated is that the government really can pretty much borrow what it wants. It supported the economy enormously. We've borrowed more than ever before and interest rates have hit record lows. Um, Why can't we carry on doing this for much longer? I mean, um, it's not necessarily a uh, poster boy for a successful economy. But the Japanese have managed to uh, rack up debt, you know, double, more than double what our debt is without, um, w- without any kind of catastrophe. So, so why do we need to get debt down over time or even stabilise it? Why can't we just keep on borrowing?
2: Well, we certainly can borrow large sums of money during periods like the moment and it's completely um, the right response. If you continue to try and do it, what you would find is that people would the, the economy essentially would start to develop inflationary pressures. At that point, um, you would be forced into some tax rises or interest rate rises to try and take um, the heat off the economy. So naturally, you'd see the tax rises come, or you'd see debt, or you'd see your interest rates go up, which would push up your debt interest costs, which in turn would almost certainly force you into some fiscal action anyway. So absolutely, when. When interest rates are incredibly low and the economy is very very weak that is exactly the moment you should be borrowing large sums of money but you do then in the better times when you're not in a situation when demand is so weak um, at that point when perhaps there's some inflation back at that point you do need to be running policy in a more balanced way and you do need to be trying to compare prepare the space so you can take action again next time it's needed
0: uh, what if demand does remain very weak? I mean I mean the Japanese experience, as I understand it, is that demand has remained weak over a very long period, and that has meant that they've run deficits over a very long period.
2: No, and that would be an extremely scary situation. In fact, the government at the moment in the UK indeed in the eurozone and in the US can they can all those governments can borrow incredibly cheaply at rates that are very similar to what Japan has been able to borrow at over the last two decades, and while being able to borrow cheaply in some sense is better than having to borrow in expensive terms. Um, it's important to remember that what that low borrowing cost associated with in Japan has been a period where growth has been phenomenally weak. And there's been many years where inflation has actually turned out to be negative, not positive. And I guess part of the message then is, you know, we've been talking about perhaps the less pleasant choices about how you might be trying to get the deficit down in the medium term. Well, actually, in the near term, given the government can borrow very cheaply, it certainly should be looking at spending areas where perhaps borrowing a bit more now if that money could be help us to deliver a more complete recovery, that would mean we would have less of a deficit problem to worry about in the medium term. That would be an investment worth doing and there is certainly a case for doing public sector investments at the moment as long as you can actually do them and do them well because we can borrow so cheaply and that could be beneficial to long term growth
0: so you 've said a lot about how cheaply we can can borrow. Can, can you just um, give us a sense of Because these numbers are astonishing, aren't they? Can you just give us a sense of quite how cheaply the government can can currently borrow and and, and how unbelievable that really is? So if the government issues um, conventional gilt, so they're
2: they're, they're ones where the the, the payouts are fixed in in cash terms, it can borrow on a 30 or even a 50-year basis at well below 1% a year. So locking in a nominal interest rate of below 1% a year for the next 30 years and beyond. And that's consistently been the case over the last six months. Um, if the government chooses to issue index link gilts, so they're gilts where the return you get um, depends on what's happening to the inf- to inflation as measured by the RPI. Well, at the start of September, the Debt Management Office sold £459 million worth of gilts right the way through to uh, 2056. So that's 36 years locked in. And the return on those um, is the RPI plus minus 2%. So you know, in RPI adjusted terms, the return is minus 2% a year. So investors are basically saying that they're happy to lend the government money as long as they get an absolute promise that they'll get half of it back over the next 36
0: years. That's absolutely astonishing. Wow. Um, I'm not sure I'd want to lend anyone money um, on that basis. And uh, Ben, why, why is it that um, people are willing to lend not just the British government, but governments across the world, uh, on these extraordinary terms, where, on which it basically looks like you you're you, you're 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 bound to lose a load of money. Why 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 are people doing it?
1: Well, I mean, aside from the losing large amounts of money, coming, which we can come to secondly, it's it is clear that um, what we describe as sort of long term equilibrium interest rates have fallen a lot and have fallen significantly as a result of this pandemic. If um, one way you could sort of think about this is, uh, uh, or what long-term e- equilibrium interest rates are as, as sort of um, factors such as long-term potential growth, which I think some people have revised down in some jurisdictions and that may apply in the UK. Um, also factors such as the scale of global – this is very much a global trend, but sort of global excess savings versus demand for investment, which is another important driver – And the other, by the way, is um, levels of aggregate indebtedness themselves, which um, to the degree that sort of increases the scale of the impact of any rate increase on aggregate demand, that then also pushes down the scale or the degree to which um, central banks can increase policy rates before they start to find that actually demand has fallen very, very significantly and any subsequent tightening of policy has had the desired effect. So in many ways, what we've seen is, is partly a structural phenomenon in the sense that um, every across the globe, um, people have revised down their expectations of where policy rates in the, Fed, in the United States or in the Eurozone are likely to be able to go. Um, but on the other hand as well, there's also been a cyclical component of that move in the sense that in a case where the outlook is very uncertain, where everyone's revising down their growth expectations, people are desperately seeking assets um, that are risk-free. And in that sense, things like gilts and US treasuries and all the rest of it, people are willing to pay to keep their money there or take a hit to keep their money there in order to make sure it's secure, just as it has been the case in any recent crisis.
0: But so, so the answer—I mean, the short answer is people are scared. Um, they, they're scared to put their money somewhere else, and there's a lot of money to put somewhere. Uh, so they're willing to pay quite a lot to be sure they're at least, as Carl was saying, get half of it back in 30 years' time.
2: And I think what's astonishing there is it's not that they're just scared over the next two, three, five years. It's the length of the um, the, the scaredness is persisting for such a long time. People are worried about long term prospects, not just prospects over the next little,
0: few years. And, and this is an international phenomenon. But I mean, are there particular reasons that we might be a bit worried in in, in the UK associated with things like you know, Brexit and where our politics are then? I mean, is this something that um, might prove to be a bigger issue for the UK than for other countries?
1: I think there's good reason to potentially be a bit more concerned in, in the UK. From I think from an investor point of view, one of the things you're most worried about is um, you know, if if for whatever reason Gilt started to sell off and you started to see a, you know, the price of your asset drop essentially, as uh, something that's always supported you and has kept yields low, sort of the government cost of borrowing low, has been the ability of the Bank of England to come in and support them. And I should be clear here, this is the Bank of England doing what it should to protect um, monetary, uh, to protect um, price stability in most contexts. You know, in the event of a crisis, we want the Bank of England to loosen policy and subsequently you know one of the byproducts of that is to make it cheaper for the government to borrow as well as supporting people who hold guilts in in an existing sense and one of the vulnerabilities that across the world's largest economies is unique to the UK is our dependence on foreign financing Which, if one thinks about a future crisis, which, as Carl describes, you know, we need to make sure we've got fiscal space for, um, because we now, given the limits and and where long-term rates are, we really are depending on fiscal policy to do the heavy lifting. Um, So that implies that in the event of a future crisis, a larger increase in borrowing. Um, One of the things that we have to be absolutely sure of is that gilts are seen as absolutely solid. Because one of, the, one of the scenarios that could make life very difficult for the UK in the event of a future crisis is if they aren't, for whatever reason, um, it's quite likely the UK would see a large outflow of capital, a net outflow of capital. And in that case, it's very difficult for the Bank of England to cut rates further or provide more general support. Because actually at that stage, its primary job is to try and protect the stability of the currency and the wider financial stability of the United Kingdom. Um, so broadly, you know, this is all a very, this is not by any means a, a base case scenario or something we should expect. But it's something that given the UK's dependence on inflows of capital, it's a scenario to which we are potentially more vulnerable. And that is one of the reasons why this conversation about, you know, supporting the economy now, absolutely, but in the medium term, ensuring that fiscal policy is seen on a, to be on a sustainable trajectory, I think is particularly important in the UK, potentially more than, as I say, in the euro area or in the United States for, for different reasons. It's also one of the reasons why the UK is very different to Japan. You know, Japan has never depended on foreign capital in the same way. In fact, Japan has always exported capital.
0: That's really interesting. And that, I mean, that takes us, I think, to our last uh, question, Carl. If we want to get onto that sustainable fiscal path, and um, Ben has scared me into thinking we probably do, um, what's the uh, what? what, how, How should we go about that? Well, for now, we just need to be the Chancellor needs to be thinking about where
2: further injections could be made to try and ensure a fuller recovery. And he also needs to be doing things like making very clear that he takes the long run strength of the public finances very seriously, and that he supports some of the the key institutions we have around economic policy making, the independence of the Office for Budget Responsibility, the independence of the Monetary Policy Committee, uh, the commitment to allowing them to to, to meet an inflation target. Over the longer term, um, not this year, not next year, beyond that, Um, It's probably tax rises that we're looking at. There could be some spending cuts, but tax rises perhaps more likely given the magnitude of the the kind of sums we're talking about, plus the fact we've had a decade of austerity, which makes further spending cuts likely to be um, relatively painful. And in terms of those tax rises, I guess, it'd be surprising if you were doing substantial tax rises and you weren't looking at the main rates of income tax, national insurance or VAT, because they're tax levers that you can pull and you know that you'll bring in relatively large sums of money. Um, And it'll obviously be people on average and above average incomes who'll be paying the most from that. Um, One would hope that the government also takes the opportunity to look at where the tax system's currently weak and to strengthen it. So therefore we get tax rises, but tax rises that perhaps aren't quite as painful as they would otherwise be. So we look at where our tax system is not very well designed and seek to improve it. Um, So in that sense, we don't waste the crisis um, that we're currently in.
0: Well, you should never, of course, waste a um, crisis, uh, though, as you say, there is some time to come before we need to do any of that. we've come uh, well to the end of our allotted time i mean, the i mean I, I think you know i'd sum up what we've um, heard today by saying that the economy not surprisingly has taken a huge hit um over the next year we're not really going to start feeling that and, until you know quite soon the next 6 months or so we're likely to see a big increase in unemployment and that's really going to obviously uh, be dreadful for the people affected Uh, And that's partly because this has been going on for so long now and partly because the government is withdrawing some of its support, despite having spent record levels um, on this crisis over the last um, six months. Perhaps most worryingly is that uh, all of the economic forecasts are for a pretty slow recovery. Um, We've heard from Ben that we probably won't get back even to 2019 levels of output until 2023. And you know, beyond that, we're going to be on a slower uh, growth trajectory. Part of that is down to Brexit. A large part of it's down to the coronavirus. And one of the consequences of that, of course, will be lower incomes and higher unemployment for a protracted period of time. But a real problem also for the Treasury and the Chancellor as he looks to, um, uh, as he deals with a very large debt, but not just a very large debt, but a deficit, uh, which is making that debt grow continually. Uh, And that's going to result, as Carl's just said, in the need for some kind of fiscal consolidation, also known as tax rises, um, over the years, uh, probably from the middle uh, of this decade. In the end, there really isn't a completely free lunch when it comes to government spending. Uh, So uh, thank you very much uh, for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of the IFS Zooms In, please hit subscribe. And rate us. If you want to see uh, any more of our work either on uh, the uh, fiscal situation or on what's happening with uh, COVID-19, do go to our website ifs.org.uk. Uh, please stay well and we look forward to seeing you again soon.